Welcome home. You're listening to 180 Church Podcast. Today's sermon is given by Dr. Sammy D. Kim, a co-founder of 180 Church NYC, a bioethics fellow in global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School, and a regular contributor at Christianity Today. So, the retreat's almost over. You guys sad? Yeah, you want to, but there's one more thing. <laughs> one more thing in the tradition of Steve Jobs, of course. We haven't finished. We have one more thing profound left to talk about. And for those of you who, who came up for today, let's do a brief review, okay? Let's move down. What we talked about this weekend is cultivating a life of listening. And there are three themes that emerged, right? We said that to cultivate a life of listening to the voice of God, we have to develop sacred and space times, sacred places, and sacred people. And we've done those two this weekend we done sacred times, with an overview of that, sacred places. We went to the park with the lake and beach and spent an hour or so with God and others. Today, we're going to talk about sacred, developing sacred people, sacred friends. Look, look to the person left here and be like, you're my sacred friend. <laughs> Will you be my friend? So move on. So let, let's let's just briefly review sacred times. Let's go down. Um, when you talk about sacred times, we're talking about creating space to meet with God and to meet with God's people. Right, Jonathan? Yes. <laughs> you're you're God's people. So I remember even last night. I mean, the reason why we did worship at 1 o'clock was to give people enough time to pick out. Those desserts were sinful. They are against my regimen. My wife was sleeping, so I said, hey, there's no accountability. <laughs> but even, even, the, uh, even the parents that put their kids to bed, you know, they were out there. Surgeon Lee was, I don't know, what he, he was picking out. I, was, I gave him eyes of judgment, and he was eating. Haley, you know, Haley was there. The, no kids. They were just sleeping, and we were talking. And a lot of times people think that sacred times are a worship service or singing or preaching or reading or journaling or you have to be out in the park. But, no, sacred times is an intentional, deliberate commitment to be in a sacred, make something sacred. And I remember... Uh, Andrew and Hale, like, what time is it? I was like, one o'clock. They were like, what? The last time, like, we were out at one was never. <laughs> like, Manny, Manny, he's three years old, right? This, the last time they were out that late was, like, three years ago. And it was a sacred moment. And they're like, I got to go. They, they went back to hurry. We gotta, they wake up at five o'clock. But without the deliberate creating of the space of sacred times like this together, 
That's why we do this, these retreats, to create sacred times together, to create sacred conversations together. That's the last time I've been with those two at one o'clock. And they lost track of what? Time. Time. What is the point of a relationship? See, like, if you want to develop sacred friends, what is the point of a relationship if you keep looking at the time? I got to go. I got to go in five minutes. I mean, the whole point of a sacred relationship is wasting time together. That's the whole point of a relationship. The whole point of a relationship, intimate relationship, is to waste time together. Without sacred times, that cannot happen where you talk about nothing, but sometimes that nothing is more important than everything. I got that from You Got Mail, by the way. That's Meg Ryan. But watch it. So that, that's sacred times. Um, secondly, we talked about uh, briefly about sacred places. Look at that. This is, this is, uh, this is one I missed yesterday. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, we got to... You gotta go to the hills when your heart is lonely, right? And you know you will hear what you heard before, and your heart will be what? Blessed. Now when you ever go to a park and you see a lake, you're gonna hear the sound of music. There are times in my life where I would walk Brownie right near our park, like at midnight, and I was going through some things, some angst, so I decided to be Drew Andrews. And I would walk Brownie, close my eyes. You can picture this, right? Totally see me do this thing. And I'm like, you know, I go to the hills when my heart is lonely, right? And I, and I would sing. And I would sing aloud. People were like, what the heck is wrong with that guy? <laughs> what the heck is wrong with you? Why are you outside at midnight? <laughs> but my heart was always blessed, turning to God. Because sacred places could be anywhere. It could be on the subway. I, I just wouldn't probably sing it there. <laughs> I mean, this is New York. They could start joining you. Like, I like that song, too. But, but, I mean, that discipline of cultivating sacred places, man, it's, it's powerful. I remember those were times, if I could remember how I got through dark seasons of my life, and Brownie could tell you, if she could talk, she would tell you he didn't sing that song that well. I think he was crying, some jerks of tears. I mean, but man, I, I, just, I just really pray that you, that imagery is just imprinted in your mind, that you can turn to the hills, like Jesus turned to the hills to the Father. And he knew that when his heart was broken, lonely, and empty, that he would hear the Father's voice again and that his heart would be blessed. And the powerful line is that, and I'll sing once more. So the song, what? Continues. Continues. And for all of you in this room that didn't watch Sound of Music, we invite you to our house to watch it. <laughs> and we're going to sit there, make sure you watch every part, <laughs> and culture you a bit. Okay. So let's talk about the one more thing. Let's talk about sacred people. And I, and I told you this. Um, let's move down. 
all around the world, the most successful leaders in state, governments, academia, I meet. The one motif, the one theme that continues to resonate and rise when I meet people is how lonely they are. People who travel for work, and I know we always like fantasize about travel, but when you travel for work, it's no longer fun. It's empty airports, it's you're alone in the hotel room, and your food's not even that good anymore, right? There are people who do, do amazing things, who add to, the, add to this world and change the world. They do these things, but a lot of times they confess how lonely their lives are because they don't have sacred friends. They have transactions, and they even have transformations and change policy and work on things that connect the world and make it a better place. But th there's a, a lacking of soul friends. And the truth is, um, how could you have soul friends if you're always in a hurry? Right? And so all these motifs that we're tackling, as Dallas Willard talks about, is, it says some, some famous pastor once asked him, so what, what, what do I have to do to, to be able to hear God? Well, what do I have to do to always be in step with the Spirit? And he said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. What else? He was on a long-distance phone call in the 1990s, and he was, you know, trying to get all these golden nuggets as much as possible. He was already hurrying the process. And then Dallas Willard said, kind of annoyed, that's it. Because this is long distance. I need more than that. You have to ruthlessly eliminate hurry because if you don't, you'll miss the greatest relationships, the greatest gifts that God has for your life. It can't be developed without surrendering that time. So what, what, what like we asked from the very beginning of the retreat, what, what is driving you? What are you, why are you in such a hurry? Where, where are you trying to get to? Ask someone next to you, where are you trying to go? Well, you're like, if you were like sort of dense, and some of you are dense in this room, so you might be like, trying to catch the train, <laughs> trying to catch the bus, you know? I'm trying, and, and you would fill in all these like, you know, perfunctory things you do. But are perfunctory things worthy to lose your life over? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's what I'm trying, like, you're not a bot, right? I mean, like, you're in a hurry for something perfunctory. And, and it's, like I said, like if, if life is defined by anxiety because you're in a hurry all the time because you have to get things done, what is the point of your life? What is the point? So as Dallas Wheeler says, that's, the, that's kind of the The major thrust of this weekend, slow down, pay attention. Pay attention to people, pay attention to Kevin. Because uh -huh. Kevin and Wendy yesterday, when they made those tacos, I paid attention. <laughs> because it was amazing. That's what it means to slow down, to pay attention. Not to slow down and be like, okay, what do I do now? No, it's to, to see, to hear what's going on. So 
how do you do this? Well, let's look at this passage here. Why we need all three sacred times, sacred places, and sacred people is because there will be some times in your life where sacred times and even sacred places won't be enough. You won't be able to hear God when you go to that sacred place sometimes because you'll be going through something very dark where your faith is shaken, where you're so hurt or you're numb, you can't feel anything. And you're trying to make sense of the dissonance in your life. And let, let me just tell you, there will be dissonance. It's not if. It's what? It's when. And when those times come, you have to make sense of why God would allow such thing. Why God would allow such loss, such brokenness, such pain in your life. And, and what defines usually a believer in, in, in a, you know, an 80-year period? If you got, came to Christ in your 20s or, you, you know, your, your, your life ends at 80s, that 50-year period is defining those moments of dissonance and being able to come back from them and understand why. But that's very difficult to do. That's why... I mean, if this part didn't exist, we wouldn't need the church. You can make your own sacred times. Right? You can, in fact, come to this park every Sunday by yourself and walk it and be like, whoa, this is awesome. God, you're, you made this. And you made me. Awesome. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and for some people, that's what people say, that, that Christianity, you don't need the ecclesia. You don't need the community to do church until... <laughs> Loss happens, and suffering happens, and pain happens. This is ubiquitous to life, right? What happens when something tragic or painful happens to your life? What's your first question? Yeah, why me? See, that's a question of entitlement. Why me? Why not her? Why not him? Why me? <laughs> it's like, curse him, not me. Leave me out of it. But, but, but the thing is... Why not you? Right? Everybody suffers. That's what it means to be human. It means you're prone to vulnerability. But the first question we ask instead is, why me? Like we're entitled to a perfect life. Anybody entitled to a perfect life here? At times, you'd be like, why is my life perfect? God, what's wrong? And so if you are a believer, then your lens of the way your life should work out can't be successful people or celebrities or even successful spiritual leaders. And you go, I want my life to look like that. But who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Jesus. Last time I checked about you're supposed to follow him, right? It doesn't say follow Dr. Sammy or P. Lid. It doesn't say follow Billy Graham anywhere in the Bible. Jesus said follow who? follow me. Then your lens of suffering has to be whose? Jesus. And here's the problem. When you suffer and when you lose and when you're in pain, you're going to naturally go to your friends. And a lot of them will give you the wrong advice. <laughs> They'll go, I know why this is happening. 
I remember. Tell some of my friends, hey, you know, I'm really going through a hard time, and my parents, my mom passed out, it's really difficult. The church is struggling. I just feel like I'm losing. And people said, well, you see, God's, you see, God is breaking you to use you. Right? You were halty, so now he's trying to make you humble. Don't you see that? That's why he took your mom. What? That's why, that's why you have to suffer this way. So you understand that you're nothing. Really? And I did believe that for a long time, until to my mid-30s, I believed. I told you my correct age, not lying about it this time. But <laughs> I believed that for a long time, because suffer, it, it, everybody wants to make, meaning making, making comes when suffering happens, because you don't want to suffer in vain. You want to know there is a meaning, in, and the greatest danger of suffering and loss is to try to make sense of it logically, systematically, and be wrong about it. So let's look at the lens of Jesus. Paul talks about communion, right? Says that, for I received from what? Of, from the Lord, what I also what? Pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was what? Betrayed. betrayed. You, have you ever been betrayed? Well, Jesus was, in the most brutal way possible. That first word, betrayed. And when he had given thanks, he what? So he took the bread, and he broke it. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. Why did God break Jesus? If you look at Isaiah, the weight of the whole world was upon him. Our iniquities, Isaiah says, crushed him. The wrath of God was poured on Jesus. But yet, Jesus was what? Without any sin. A lot of times in suffering and loss, what you will look for is a, more, a lens that really comes from Buddhism. What do we call that? Karma. And a lot of Christians are actually sometimes better Buddhists than they are Christians. They look it through the lens of, well, I must have done something, some sin. How many people here paranoid about some sin in your life? Well, was that a sin or not a sin? I don't know, but it probably was. Because my heart, Jeremiah, says the most deceitful, so it probably was. So this is probably discipline for that sin. Like, or I was prideful, or it was this. So we look for faults for why this has happened in our life. And even though the Bible says it's not, we feel like this early it is. But the Bible talks about very clearly Jesus with his body was broken to be given to others, but yet he had no fault. So you have to look through the lens of what? Your, your faith is in Christ. It says you... You have died with Christ, Paul says, and you have what? Also risen with Christ. So your lens for you, your brokenness cannot come from any other framework or experience or existential experience from other mentors or anyone else. It has to come from Christ. 
That's your foundation. Because other people, like my mentor, said, well, I went through this because, you know, I was like this and I was like that. But not, not, that might not be you. I have people tell me, you're like Joseph. You know, you're like Moses. You know, God raises you up, breaks you. That 40 years in the desert, I'm like, come on, man, not 40 years, right? What a lot of people don't understand about the Bible is that most of you in this room, you're not like aristocracy, right? <laughs> like, anyone have a billion dollars here? Let me know because, you know, I didn't see it in the offering. <laughs> Definitely don't see that. You know when God breaks people in the Bible, like, because of their pride? They're usually from royal palaces. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he struggled with pride because he ruled the ancient world. Moses, he was the son of Pharaoh. People literally wiped his bottom when he pooped out things. And some people, sometimes well-meaning friends and even mentors will use these lenses and say, that's you. And I cannot relate to Moses, and I cannot relate to Nebuchadnezzar. My parents did well, but not that well. <laughs> We're immigrants. Look, this is me and my mom. Like, like Linda Manuel Miranda says, we immigrants, we get the job done. We, we, we're coming up from the bottom. How can someone coming up from the bottom need to be crushed? I'm not from a palace. But those lenses are used to those lenses are used to apply to you. None of you here are from a palace, <laughs> right? Let me know if you are. We got some words. No, but a lot of times people misunderstand suffering and use the wrong context, context of suffering, and they impute wrong values to your suffering and your loss. It has nothing to do with that. Suffering actually doesn't have an intention per se. It's God takes what is not good and makes it good. He turns it into good. He never causes them. So in, in a way, suffering is a gift. Tell someone suffering is a gift. You're like, no, it's not. Suffering is not a gift. If you read the Lord of the Rings, that's the lens Tolkien uses. Suffering is a gift to make you an empathetic person, to have sympathy. Or as this passage talks about later, the God of compassion, right? Until my mom had cancer, when people said, you know, my dad has cancer, it was like, oh, I'll pray for you. That's sad. Now when someone else has cancer, their parents, Oh, or my parents passed away. There's empathy. I, I lived in their shoes before. Right? But brokenness doesn't have a prescription or even a reason, per se. Because Christ was broken, not be, uh, of the fault of his own at all. But to be what? To be distributed. His suffering was distributed to bless many. 
So if you take suffering through that lens, it can help you understand it better. So what's the first thing? Cultivating safe people, first thing. Read with me. Sacred people what? Help you what? Yes. Sacred people help you discern God's voice, not their own opinion. We've seen this in the book of Job. Job's friends gave him their opinion. A lot of my own friends and mentors gave me their opinion because they saw through Scripture, and sometimes people use Scripture to manipulate their opinion. And that's why when you share your sacred stories, your painful stories, you probably shouldn't share with everyone. Because how many people here, I mean, you've got to be honest with me, I'm like this, and I repent, you know what I'm saying? How people judgmental? You, you know, you're a little judgy. You ju- you're a little judgy? Harris, you're judgy. <laughs> just not, you just don't look like you. I don't judge. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. No, come on. I mean, you're, you're a little judgy, right? I mean, you look at someone and you diagnose who they are. They're like this, and you have no idea. You haven't lived in their shoes. You haven't experienced what they experienced. You haven't shared their pain. You're just like, well, this person is reduced to this. Smart, stupid, annoying, too much, loud. The complexity of a human being, the imago Dei, the image of God, influencing, creating that person. But the, the problem is you're judgy. You always thought. If I said, what have you always thought about John? No, let's not do that. I mean, you would have presuppositions. And the problem of the pretext is that a lot of us, when we enter conversations and hear people's story, we're not even listening to their story. We're already thinking of what we should say. So therefore, you're not really listening. You're just, what? Waiting for them to stop talking so you can give your opinion. That's not who safe people are. That's not who sacred people are. They don't judge you based on your, even your past or even your present. They listen to what is really happening in the context of what God is doing. And they help you discern God's voice. They help you discern God's voice. And honestly, I say this because I haven't seen a good model of this in the church. Just like I'm behind every major curtain of Christianity, all the leaders, and I haven't seen it even well there. Because we have, we're so judgmental. I really dream of 180 becoming an ecclesia where we're judgment free. Like, no judgment. How do you do that? You got to see the lens of the cross. Jesus died for every single person in this room. Jesus died for the whole world, but it means that the Missio Dei was influenced by the Imago Dei, meaning that God saw everyone worthy of saving and redeeming, and their story worthy. Can you tell that to the person next to you? But, but in Marvel, they, they, they say, you must be worthy, right? Thor. Tell them, you're worthy. And you're like, when you hear that, you're worthy, how do you feel like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, 
thinks. It's, those are some powerful words. You're worthy. Just two. But you're worthy? You're worthy of the death of Jesus on the cross. Then you're worthy. If you weren't worthy before, you are now. Because of his death. And everything, every lens of suffering, loss, grief, has to come through that lens. So, if you're going to do a grief journal, and this is probably the worst thing the church does, we just don't have a context for this well. I think we're developing in the last 30 years or so. Layton's been one of the major leaders of that, Dallas Willard too, and others have been speaking to this issue about the, the ambiguity, the precarious nature of life, you know, um, how to process grief. You have to find sacred people. And sometimes that's not going to be easy. That's why I want to start a community of sacred people. So that's the first thing. They help you discern God's voice and not their opinion. It could be completely different from what you think. And most of the times, it is completely different than what you think. So secondly, so what is the purpose of suffering then in the context of the biblical context, in the context of looking through the lens of Christ? If there's any brokenness and the reason for it at all, let's move down. Well, what is the reason for suffering and grief and loss? Well, first of all, I would just say you're not special in the sense that where you're going to be completely exempt from suffering. No one, no human being is, right? But it, let's say you were exempt from suffering completely. Then that would also make you a special person because then you can't connect to anyone else. What person that never experienced suffering or any kind of pain could even understand the cross or could understand any one of us? They'd be so superficial, they wouldn't be able to connect in a deep level with you in any way. So then they would experience a new kind of suffering, logically. A suffering of not being able to connect to anybody. Socially inept. That's why that's not possible. So Paul says, praise to be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort. And that's a declaration. That's, that's because, and you go, well, how does God know what suffering is like? Because of Jesus. You go, well, how did God suffer the cross? Well, he was a father that had to give his son for suffering. I would rather experience suffering than my own son. When I see my son suffer, it's more painful than if I suffered. So the father suffered a suffering even Jesus didn't suffer. Where a child is suffering, and he is, in a way, helpless, even though he's not. He purposely allows him to suffer. So the Father and Jesus both suffer suffering. So when you go to God, it's not like he can't understand your suffering. Jesus suffered more than all of us combined. And for us, we're all sinners. Jesus is not. He was without fault. And it says, verse 4, who, comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can what? Comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we what? We're 
we, we ourselves receiving God. You cannot give someone what you do not have. Right? You can't take someone where you've never been. So suffering in the context through the lens of the cross is always about suffering happens or God allows suffering for the sake of others. It's not for the sake of your own self because that would be vain for you just to learn a lesson. A lot of people think that I learned this lesson and I wouldn't have learned this lesson without that suffering. No, 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 no. That wouldn't be God's objective. Well, God had to teach me a lesson. No, no, no. God doesn't let you suffer to teach you a lesson. Like if my kids didn't have to take a test and I, you know, and I made them study for no reason and yelled at them to be state level or whatever, that would be wrong. I don't want to teach them a lesson for the sake of, for a lesson. I want them to be what? A human being that's, that understands social relationships in a certain way. That's why I push them. Jesus doesn't, the Father doesn't punish you to teach you a lesson or let you suffer to teach you a lesson about life. No. The context of the cross, he said, lets you suffer for the sake of others. Tell someone, for the sake of others. For the sake of others. Compassion. Empathy. To make you deeper person. That's why Jesus suffered, for the sake of others. He didn't suffer for the sake of himself or to learn the lesson from the Father. People talk about, well, the, Jesus had to learn dependency on the Father. No, no, no. Jesus suffered solely for the sake of others. It was, in many ways, outreach. Not an extension of himself at all. It didn't have anything to do with him. The, when people break the bread all over the world in communion and pass it away, before you can pass the bread, it has to be broken. But the intent of that brokenness matters. And I just, what I hope is that your suffering would heal and comfort those who suffer the same thing in our community and around the world. That's the only way biblically you can make sense of suffering. We suffer because Christ suffered. Christ suffered because people suffer. It's perpetual. It's a full circle. So, let's move down here. So, sacred people help what? The greatest losses become your greatest gift. Now, Bethany Hamilton says something like this that I think is powerful. Bethany Hamilton is a Christian professional surfer who lost her arm when she was a teenager. And if you haven't watched the movie Soul Surfer, I highly recommend it. It's a tearjerker. And this is her quote. She says that, I've had the chance to embrace more people with one arm than I ever could with two. God takes the, the greatest losses and helps them become the greatest gifts to our friends, to our family, to the world. Because that's what the lens of the cross is, right? Jesus' body is broken and distributed to all for the forgiveness of sins, for the healing of the heart, of redemption. So, if you're going to process your grief, 
You need people around you that can help you do those two things well. Because if they input why you suffered or why you lost, based on their opinion, it's going to hurt you more, set you back from the direction God wants to take you. Second, it has to be redemptive. In the end, suffering happens. It's a mystery to in, the in and outs of it. But the purpose of it is beautiful. The process is awful. But the purpose behind it, the cross, your own suffering, your own loss, is beautiful. And some of you in this room might be like, the things I've done and the things done to me are so hideous and so evil. I don't think anyone experienced them. You'd be wrong. The whole lie of the enemy is you're the only one. Tell someone next to you how the, what the, how the enemy would say that to you. You're the only one. Who's the, who's the master of mafia here? The devil is in our nest. Yeah, the devil would say the enemy, the evil one, would say you're the only one. That's why you're flawed. That's why you're inherently flawed. There's no one that can understand you. Wrong. Incorrect. Lies. There are many that can understand you. And there are many that, you, that need to be understood by you, actually, because they're asking the same question. And that's how the cross heals and redeems. Through his suffering, through his stripes, Isaiah says, we are what? Healed. And that's, our, that's what I pray. Our, our greatest pain, our greatest losses, the greatest tragedies become God's trophy of grace. And so, how would you input this in your life? How would you integrate this in your life? People, people say this to me all the time about the, about the community, about the church. You know, people talk about how, hey, you're spending too much time at church. Anybody hear that? You know, what is church your life, whole life? You know, you go to small group, then you go to church, then you go to another meeting for church. When are you going to live your life? And this is what I have to say to them and all of you to help you put this into context, okay? What is your life? What is your life going to be about? It's not the activity of church. The church is not a building. It's a community. And what I have to say is this. This level is beyond small groups. Right? Small groups is where it's a touch and go place where you could, you know, reset what you're hearing from God, what the community is doing. You need more. You need deeper relationships than that. How are you going to cultivate them? You have to intentionally do more. You go, how am I going to do more? I mean, I already, I mean, I already do this, 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 and this, and that. I can't do more. Well, 
I'll just say this, you're too busy not to. You're like, how does that make sense? You're too busy not to. Yeah, you're like, you're too busy not to pray? You're too busy not to. You're, you're too much in a rush not to develop these deliberate relationships where sacred spaces happen. Yeah, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take time, but they're worth it. It doesn't have to be every week. But how do you create that space where you talk about things that actually matter? That's the challenge before you. Because small groups could accomplish that. And that's what we hope. But sometimes you need something deeper than that. Well, you go, well, I go to a small group. You know, I'm all good. Well, maybe there's some things you don't want to share with, you know, the same gender. I know some guys can't. But there are deeper things. And, and psychologists talk about this all the time. You know, people pay another person $500 an hour to talk about. There's a culprit right there. I mean, they, they pay $500 an hour. I mean, there's a sliding scale, but, you know, they pay hundreds of dollars an hour to process this sacred we're talking about the sacred person. You're paying someone to be that sacred person. That's what psychology is. It's expensive. But people do it because, I mean, who doesn't, who has the time every hour to do that? They make the time. They sacrifice. So, and there, there's a study that says that people who don't pay for counseling don't get well. You have to pay a price. So, if there are relationships in your life, you want to define the relationships in your life, you want to see if you have soul friends, you have to pay a price for them. You have, to be, you have to pay a price for that to happen. Like, was your salvation and mine earned by Christ because he didn't pay a price? It was easy? No. It was costly. It took everything. And that's how we're going to close today. You have to be deliberate. And as Willer says, Dallas Willer says, how do you do it? Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Go to someone, right? Be like, Keiko, these are the things in my heart. We're not talking about just like stupid things, you know? We're talking about that one hour, couple of times a year, hey, I wanna talk about my soul. Does that sound weird? It does, right? Like, hey, you want to talk about my soul? Uh, no. <laughs> it only sounds weird because you're not used to it yet. I mean, they have workouts now, like Orange Theory. And well, what else is there? There's Soul Cycle. What else? Boot Berries Boot Camp. Where they have a whole workout segment tailored to your workout needs, where you burn 1,000, 1,200 calories a time. You have to pay for these classes. They do, they do this in the world. And they what? I mean, pe these people are not busy. You know, they get in the workout. 1,200 calories done. Bam, I'm good. So people do it for different segments of their life. Why can't you do it for the most important? And that's what I'm talking about, that you have to develop soul friends. And that's something I can't do for you. That's your choice. So it's like asking someone out, you know, but not romantically. You know what I'm saying? It's like, hey, you create your own group of soul friends. And that will be your challenge, this retreat. 
what will impact your life more than 30 years from now? Not if you're at this church. Not if I'm your pastor. Not if you read Layton's new book. It will be if you cultivate these three things in your life, especially the third one. That will make the ultimate difference in your life. Let's stand and pray together. Father, I pray for the faces of people. Spirit of God, show us the people that we can become so friends with or deepen so friends we already have. So we can walk in the direction you're leading our lives and the work you're trying to accomplish in us so we can flourish in every way could be carried into completion because friends there are weeds in your life today and tares that the enemy has planted to destroy you I mean, have you ever tried to take on a weed? I personally haven't, but I've watched YouTube videos of it, and it's tough. <laughs> you need help. The enemy plants weeds, tears to torpedo and sabotage God's masterpiece. Oh. Holy Spirit, give us the courage to develop so friends so we can share our lives with them on the deepest level. you to think about this as we pray today. If the greatest gift you received in your life came at the greatest cost, then why would you think that any gift you receive in your life, the greatest gifts, the best gifts in your life, won't come at a cost? Find people that will, that's willing to pay the price. Because nothing incredible comes for free. We've seen that in the, in the cross. And we've seen that here in this passage. As we close today, I'm going to give you, I, know I already said one last thing. So one more last thing. I just remember uh, a scene in a movie. We bought a zoo. <laughs> Matt Damon says to his son, who has a crush on a girl, all it takes is 20 seconds of courage. Now this could apply to everybody, to anything. Those 20 seconds of courage literally changed everybody's life, right? I mean, and what I've seen in, in uh, the Christian life is most Christians stop the 20 seconds of courage 
in their romantic life. Like when they think they have someone that follows Christ, that's it. That's all you need. Like, t- I'm going to just tell my wife, my husband, everything. And your wife and husband was like, please get another soul friend. <laughs> please have the t- 20 seconds of courage. That's what I got. Now, but 20 seconds of courage can change your life in developing soul friends. That's all you need, 20 seconds of courage. Those three things. Sacred times, sacred places, and sacred people. Will you bow your heads for the benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Our God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's give God a hand for the increase. Blessings. Safe travels home. Hey everyone, we just have some community news for you as we end our podcast today. We want to invite you to join us for our Sunday service. We meet at the AMC Lowe's Theater at 19th and Broadway in Manhattan at 12 noon, and we'd love to see you guys there. We also have a prayer text hotline where you can send your prayer requests. It's available at 539-7-PRAYER and at prayer at 180church.tv. In the midst of life, if you need prayer, our team is available to lift you up in your struggles, and we're always there for you. You can check out our Bible reading group online at 180brg.tumblr.com and on Instagram as well at 180brg. And it's a great resource for being grounded in God's Word and really plugging God's Word into our daily lives. You can also find us online through our Instagram page at 180church and our church website at 180church.tv. And lastly, if you'd like to make an offering, you can do so electronically at our website at 180church.tv. 